The following is a presentation of the Living Church of God. The year, 31 A.D. The place, northern Israel, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Only weeks had passed since Jesus Christ had been betrayed, crucified, and miraculously resurrected. And now Jesus was meeting with his disciples again. He was about to establish his church, and he had vital instructions for those who would form the core of that church. He would command them to take his gospel, the good news of the kingdom, to all the world as a warning and a witness. Jesus told his apostles, You shall be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. As the disciples ate breakfast overlooking the shimmering Sea of Galilee, they learned of another vital part of God's plan for mankind. As they ate, Jesus, the Lamb of God, and the chief shepherd of the flock, revealed what that second commission would be. After these things, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. So when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Feed my lambs. The call to shepherd the church, the flock of God, would change the disciples' lives forever and would powerfully impact the church for centuries. Almost 2,000 years later, Christ's words still resonate as the second commission of the living church of God. Feed my sheep. Take heed to yourselves and to all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God. We all realize that without shepherds, sheep tend to go astray. 
They've got to have real teaching from the truth of the Bible. And Jesus said we're to live by every word of God. So the true ministers of God are charged by God. Preach the word, Paul told them. And we're to preach this message so that people really understand it and can live by every word of God. Well, the ministry, of course, is dictated by the Bible. God gives those responsibilities to the ministry. The Apostle Paul mainly talked to Timothy and uh, 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, uh, gives these major responsibilities that we speak about in our ministerial conferences. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all longsuffering and teaching. So God's ministers need to be teachers there to help the brethren grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. The main thing is to feel really, what are we doing here? We're preparing people that are going to rule the world in just a few years. I mean, you can think in very vague terms, in religious terms. When you think of the what we understand, Jesus Christ is preparing kings, rulers. And even after Christ returns, that's actually our job as teachers, being teachers in the kingdom, kings and priests. That's our focus and that's our goal. You know, Christ said the thing that we are to be keeping in mind, his kingdom come and developing their righteousness. We are obviously here to, to preach the gospel to the world, to do the work. And along the way, the ministry, our job is to facilitate and feed the flock that God is calling. And of course the way we do that is by helping people to have their hearts in the mission of the church not just to get salvation because Christ has given us a job and we grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ by fulfilling that mission that he's given the church to preach the gospel of the kingdom to the world. Preaching the gospel is a main focus for the living church of God. Feeding the flock is also very important and necessary and and uh, as a minister it's our job to give the flock a good diet it is to take care of the the sheep and feed them spiritually uh, that is uh, so that they can grow in grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ to succeed in the job of a ministry the one simple answer is they have to have the heart of a minister by having the heart of a minister, what I mean is that God has called them to this opportunity. And that means they have the mind of Christ, that their main job is, is to serve and love the brethren, to give them good, nourishing spiritual food, and that they'll put their lives on the line for the brethren. I love being with the brethren, and I, I love uh, being in my local congregation to see their faces and see their smiles and sit down and enjoy a conversation after service with them. It's a big job. It's a full-time job. And in many cases, they're always on call. But the whole object is to serve God's people, to feed the flock of God, and to care for people. The more years I serve in the ministry, the more I see the tremendous importance of Christ's example where he gave himself for the church. That's my job as a husband, as a father. It's my job as a shepherd. Obviously, every job has challenges. But to me, the greatest blessing of the ministry and pastoring is that it is all about service. 
and there's not much time to think about yourself in actual fact uh, and devoting your life to the welfare of others and serving the church in that respect for me is just one of the greatest blessings because it does say it is more blessed to give than to receive as we talk about feeding the flock as we talk about growing the flock we've got to live it it can't be just something that's up here it's got to be something that's here God is love so I think it's the central meaning of everything from putting God first loving God with all of our might our mind and soul and energy God will direct us with that kind of love to serve first the church and also it will expand to all of humanity little by little when you become aware of the fact you are a shepherd, you seem that that word wakes you up, your consciousness of what your duties are. But I didn't always think about that at the beginning of my ministry. It's little by little it has grown and it becomes more of a reality that you are a shepherd. You have to care for these people. We don't have that in our own nature. It's in the nature of Jesus Christ. We are servants, and we're serving God's people. Every single person in the church at one point was called by God. God does the calling. And you know what? The simplest principle, which you have heard, I've heard, and we have practiced, I hope, the best way of being a leader is to know how to be a servant. And that's it. I can see so many people with their big dreams. My friend, dreams only come if we know how to be humble. He that is greatest among you shall be your servant, as Jesus said. Moses was meek above all on the face of the earth. And yet God put him in a very high position of authority and of governmental service. So we need that servant attitude to be able to be effective and to help one another and to follow Christ's example. It is to serve our brethren, to give, to help, to serve, to build them. And certainly we have to correct as at times, just as a person might love his own child dearly, but correct him. Nevertheless, the whole attitude had better be service. And a servant is a person who gives, who cares, who tries to help, who tries to explain, and as well as a shepherd uh, protects his flock. And of course, we have to look out for wolves because wolves are after the sheep. And sometimes wolves come into the congregation, and uh, that's where God's government and discipline come in. We have pastors out in the field that are shepherds who really love the brethren, who care for them, who serve them. Uh, they have a pastor's heart. They have a shepherd's heart, and they care for them. And, of course, that's an example we all need to set as members of the body of Christ to love one another, to have that deep spiritual agape love that we love one another, we care for one another, we pray for one another, we help one another when we're in need. And we've got to ask God for help, for wisdom, and for His protection so we can be faithful. But know that God is there. He will always deliver us, and we can put our faith and trust in Him even into eternity.
For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The idea for the special presentations goes back quite a ways. If you look at the New Testament, the Apostle Paul made public lectures, special presentations in Antioch, in Ephesus, in Athens, and other places. He spoke to groups. Of course, Mr. Herbert Armstrong, even in the 30s, would go out and uh, preach to various uh, groups in Oregon and uh, later on in California. Dr. Meredith was assigned by Mr. Armstrong to give campaigns in various places, San Diego in 1959, and I believe it was in uh, the middle 1950s when Dr. Meredith was in England and gave uh, lectures or campaign messages six nights a week for five full weeks. And as a result of those campaigns, various congregations began. And now we're beginning to realize more and more uh, growth in the local churches because our church growth has now gone up to 7 or 8% for the last year over the United States and over the whole world. Actual church attendance. For several years we were flatlining, and now we're growing steadily, mainly because of those lectures. So we're very thankful for what they're doing. Plus, they've inspired the brethren in the local churches as well. Because the congregation works together, and they have a chance to actually participate in preaching the gospel and reaching out to other human beings. So it's a very exciting program. And, of course, one of the major responsibilities of the brethren is to follow up with love and personal interest in the attendees. And that's just so extremely important to realize that someone loves me, someone's interested in me. And uh, when we have that loving fellowship in a local congregation, it certainly does encourage new people to continually attend because many are looking for a congregation. They're looking for that connection with the true church and with the truth of God. We're out in front of the people uh, with God's truth, people who've heard just a little bit, uh, but now they're able to hear that truth expounded and to talk with those people and to hear the excitement, the enthusiasm. I mean, they know they've got hold of something good. It's really exciting. It's great to be a part of it. Generally, the first lecture focuses on Bible prophecy. What's ahead for America? What's ahead for South Africa? What's ahead for the UK? So we're talking about prophecy and how these prophecies come, are coming alive today to get people's attention. The follow-up lecture then usually is something biblical or doctrinal. How do you identify the church that Jesus Christ founded? What is the true gospel? So we're trying to introduce people to a biblical context of what the Bible actually teaches. We have a variety of responses from those who attend the lectures. Some of them are from pastors of churches who would like to join us. Others are religious hobbyists who uh, have their own agenda. But there are those who are sincere. That really makes a lot of sense. Well, good. I, I good. Can't wait to, do you have materials on it? Yes. Now, my question to you is, Okay. Uh, are you going to be here every week? or how did... Mr. Brown is here every week. So we, we actually had church here this morning. All right. So, uh, right here? Right here. Yeah. Because I, I would like to invite some of my members. Okay. So are you a minister? 
Oh, well, I tried to teach a little bit. He's a little bit, okay. I've had a number of people come up and say, this is fantastic. This, this makes sense. This is real. Uh, and then uh, if I mention something or something is mentioned in the presentation about uh, the Sabbath or the Holy Days, people will pick up on it. You mean I, I, I shouldn't be keeping Sunday? You mean I shouldn't be keeping Christmas? I mean, I should be keeping the Sabbath. What is truly the Sabbath? Sabbath is Saturday. Saturday. People take that out of context and say, well, let's talk about you can keep any day and worship on any day. What Paul was talking about was you don't fast on certain days. I mean, the whole subject is not about the Sabbath. Where did the English language actually originate from? Nice well, to meet you, and uh, we read tomorrow every month when it comes. Well, good. And I ordered the book, and then two months after I received the invitation to come here, and I read your qualifications, and I found them very interesting, and I said, I really want to hear this man. Has this been interesting for you? Very interesting. Good. Very informative. Hi, how are you? What's your name? Ernestine Fambro, and Ernestine. I'm very pleased that you're continuing in your work. We will inherit the universe. And you wonder, what is that universe out there? Well, we're all excited about uh, Dr. Meredith still being involved and taking the effort to go to London where he had preached and spoken for, what, 50 years ago or so, and to uh, tell them what he had told them 50 years ago now is coming to pass. And with 290 people attending... It was very exciting for all of the ministry in England and uh, particularly for Dr. Meredith himself. Christ is trying to prepare a people to be part of a coming government on this earth and teach these people how to live. We in this work try to help you understand the Bible and really know what the Bible says and prove it to yourselves. As Churchill said, every now and then someone stumbles over the truth and they get themselves up and rush off quickly as if nothing ever happened. <laughs> That's an interesting statement. He didn't understand what it was saying himself as far as religion is concerned. But that's a true statement. They really don't like to face the ultimate truth of things. People, particularly in this end time, with all the stresses, with the economic global crisis, and now, of course, with the oil spill in the Gulf, other of these dramatic events that are taking place, people are worried. And they want answers. And so they're motivated to come to the Bible lectures, the special presentations. Travel with us with this gift, which is administered by us to the glory of the Lord himself. Go-tos are people that we refer to as individuals that request a visit from the church, a visit from the ministers. Uh, and this is really their first in many cases, their first personal contact with somebody real. They may watch the presenters, Dr. Meredith, Mr. Ames, and others on television. They may read our articles in a magazine. But whenever they request a personal visit, they're usually very interested in what we're doing. So it's very important to be able to come across in a way that you care for people. As one person told me recently, said, you know, one of the things I'm really impressed by the Living Church of God is that you're doing the work and that you care for people. And we want to show that we care. We want to be able to answer any questions that they have. Because people coming out of various religious backgrounds have questions about the Sabbath, about the Holy Days, about the Bible. Uh, is it really trustworthy? What are some of the doctrines of the Bible, the doctrines of the church? And this is the purpose of the visit, to explain these things in a very personal way. New people energize us. 
And I think that that's one of the the, the great joys of uh, seeing the work grow. Uh, the fact that we are preaching the gospel, we have new people that are coming in contact with the work. And we need those new people because they are energizing not only to us, but to the congregation as a whole, because we see their excitement for the truth, and it reminds us of what it was like when we first came into the truth. Our field ministry is on the front line in really in working with new people and helping them. And when the light does come on, and when they say things like, I've, I've been looking for this my whole life, it's, it's just really rewarding. I try very hard not to talk about religion as such. I really want to try and get to know the people as a person in the world, and I don't try to um, come across um, as a, an austere minister or something like that. Um, it, it's very much to try and get their confidence, to know that they're talking just to another human being who's very interested in their future. And, um, and of course, that has incredible rewards later on when you suddenly find that, well, God may well be calling this person. In some cases, uh, you know, if we visit in December and uh, we go to a house, we know everybody else has Christmas trees and they don't, then we know, well, they probably have read the book on Christmas and they're not observing Christmas. And so there's, you know, things you can tell by actually visiting the house. On the other hand, you might visit a house and you uh, come in there and they've got a Christmas tree, they offer you some ham. Uh, you see, you know, some uh, maybe idols on the wall. Uh, then you realize, you know, they, they've got some learning to do, and we'll be gentle, and we'll introduce it as time goes on. But first of all, we get acquainted. But then, again, seeing their physical environment gives us an idea of how we can help them, how we can serve them. You know, there's so many we go into their homes, and, and they want to argue. They want to teach us when we come in. They don't understand what uh, God's true gospel message is. But to see a mind open and to see the way the eyes light up and, and to see their minds open to the truth and then be able to bring that individual to church, that's, that's so inspiring and, and, and it's the favorite part of this job. Well, to go to is very exciting. They seem enthusiastic and you're there to help them and answer any question if they're interested in the church and they sound like they're really interested, you tell them where you meet, what time you meet, you leave it up to them. One individual uh, actually called, wanted to come to Passover. They were baptized 50 years earlier, had never come to church. And a baptizing tour, this person was baptized, and so uh, I had a chance to perform the first Passover service for this individual 50 years later. This one go-to turned out to be um, about a 59-year-old policeman um, who believed that he was called of God and actually converted many, many years previously. And, uh, but he was dissatisfied. And he began to look on the internet and looked you know, at all sorts of sites, but for some reason latched onto uh, the Living Church of God site, ended up talking to me. And uh, I don't know whether this person will come into the church. What, what is interesting to me is God bringing them to the church, if you like. What they then do with it is, is something else. So this was just an inspiring um, experience, uh, which showed to me that God is working in a very profound and a very wide way, and I would, I would personally say um, far more than we're aware of. And, and he is bringing people to us, and in all sorts of different ways, then giving them the opportunity to respond. And that, to me, is very inspiring. And it's happening, and it hasn't stopped. It's happening 
all the time as an ongoing thing. Some of them may just be curiosity seekers, but others really want the truth. They, they need a shepherd. They don't have a shepherd. And so they need to have that service. They have questions they want answered, and our local pastors can answer those questions. And if God is calling them, they can take a step forward in faith to actually fellowship with the true body of Christ and then grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. So it's extremely important that our local elders and ministers are reaching out to those who want to be served, who have questions, who may even want to be a part of the very body of Christ. Be diligent to know the state of your flocks and attend to your herds. Christ said to go into all the world and preach the gospel. And when I think of my ministry, starting from my ordination in 1965, I believe my wife and I probably moved uh, 20 times in maybe 30 years. So we have had to uh, respond to the needs of the church. And even today, uh, we have ministers who are serving five or six or seven congregations, and they have a vast territory to cover. We just thank God for their service and their dedication to be able to serve so many congregations. It comes with the territory. Every job has its responsibilities, and for ministers, we have some ministers traveling two, three, four, five thousand miles a month if they have uh, church areas that are spread out quite a bit. We do have a large area. We do a lot of traveling. We travel as a family. Uh, we made that decision early on that we would travel together and spend time together on the weekends, especially on the Sabbath. Uh, we're responsible for five churches. Uh, we travel up to Fort Francis, Ontario, a uh, round trip that's a, a little over 600 miles. We also travel to Merrill, Wisconsin. That one's not so bad. That's around 175 miles each way. Duluth would be our closest congregation other than, than Minneapolis, and that's approximately 150 miles each way, 300 miles round trip. Our long haul is Bismarck, North Dakota. That's over 900 miles round trip. My area is the northeast area of the United States, and uh, that includes uh, nine states. Uh, so it's from Pennsylvania, New York, uh, Vermont, New Hampshire, Maine, Massachusetts, Connecticut, and, uh, and Rhode Island, and New Jersey. I pastor a congregation in Knoxville, Tennessee, and one over in Asheville, North Carolina and one down in the mountains of northern Georgia and Blairsville. I love it. I go from Omaha, Nebraska, over to Des Moines, Iowa, uh, down over to uh, Wichita area, uh, St. Joseph, Kansas City, and now Columbia, Rolla, and St. Louis. The work in Canada covers a, a vast territory. Uh, we, we have a very unique situation that we cover five and a half time zones. And I say half time zones because on Vancouver uh, is Pacific time and Newfoundland has a half hour time zone so they're half hour different from every place else and if I go up to the largest congregation which is combined Pretoria and Johannesburg they it's distance of 1600 kilometers because it's a thousand mile trip well in Kenya we have about uh, about 10 congregation they are all spread all over. The main congregation in the Philippines is in the capital region, Quezon City. Then we have one in Baguio, Isabela, Cagayan, Pangasinan. 
up to the south in Tacloban and other outlying video congregations. We're currently serving around nine countries in the world, our Indonesian office, uh, for the people uh, all over the world who can understand or understand Indonesian. They listen to Indonesian or speak Indonesian, so we're serving um, Indonesian area. The whole archipelago, we serve Singapore, people in Singapore, Malaysia, Brunei Jerusalem, uh, then um, Australia, Japan, Germany, Netherlands, uh, United States. I assist our regional director, Mr. Bruce Tyler, in looking after the welfare of the other countries. We have Thomas Thielo coming from our elder from uh, Myanmar, and he crosses over the river in the border of uh, Thailand at Mesot, and he comes and assists us in interpreting the sermons and the Bible studies and whatever other things that we need to talk to the people there. When I take these long trips, I just return from one, 31 days, going all the way from San Diego to Colombia, visiting several cities in Colombia, then to Bolivia, then to Chile, then to Argentina. We have members in the highest city on earth. It's called Cerro de Pasco in Peru. It's 14,350 feet high. It's seven hours drive from, from Lima. So it's quite an adventure knowing that you are in the highest city in the world and that you have a congregation there. And the, lo the brethren are so loyal and loving and thankful when they see the, the local elder had tears in his eyes when I went there the first time. He said, I, I never thought you would, you would come all the way here. So it is quite emotional. You excuse me, brother, you see me kind of choking here, but this is a profound thing uh, to visit these people and see their loyalty and their faithfulness and their gratitude when they see their minister uh, coming, I mean, their pastor coming all the way to those places. Then we have another family in the second southernmost city on earth. That's in Tierra del Fuego, in Argentina. I mean, you are talking this beyond the Magellan Strait. And the, the southernmost city is just 200 kilometers south of there. You are in Antarctica, practically. It's the land of the penguins. So you have a few miles down south there, you have the South Pole. And we have a family of seven who lives there, and I've been there three times to visit them. As we begin to develop more elders and ministers to go into the field, we hope that we can cut down on that amount of travel. But again, uh, we have ministers such as Mario Hernandez uh, traveling over South America and Central America and Spanish-speaking areas of the world. Uh, Mr. Epardian has gone to Martinique and Quebec and other French-speaking areas in Paris and Belgium. So again, we thank God for those dedicated ministers who are willing to serve several different congregations and to travel to fulfill that responsibility. Oh God, you have taught me from my youth, and to this day I declare your wondrous works. The young people should try to prepare to be leaders and to be servant leaders as all of us try to serve our fellow man by helping others, by getting involved as best they're able and passing out psalm books, doing the seating, taking attendance, 
going and visiting widows. My old Methodist grandmother used to take me out to visit the sick people and the poor people and take them food baskets. And our young people in the various churches ought to learn to do things like that to get involved and develop the habit of giving, helping, and serving and taking a lead in various church activities. It's really critical that we teach them to be able to, to understand what God's way is and also to be, develop a character to be able to stand up and resist uh, the, the warfare of our culture that is pushing them in a different direction. Well, we live in a world that's much like Sodom and Gomorrah. The peer pressure and the influences mainly are negative in the world in which we live. The role models to which young people look, uh, generally speaking, are not real good role models. They're pretty negative. And so our young people deal with uh, the world. Uh, of course, Satan, society, and self are the three things that we all battle. But it is a difficult time for young people in the world today. Um, values, morals, standards, ethics, uh, even in dating, marriage, and other areas of their life are vastly different from what we see, generally speaking, in the world today. Again, this is why it's important that whether it's at our camps or whether it's what we, what we teach in uh, weekly with our, our congregations, with our Sabbath services, and then we, we inspire our parents to, to encourage and work with their children about. We teach things as simple as, as manners at a, a dinner table. Uh, we teach uh, things like standing up for what, what is right, to stand up for the truth, to have character. You want to help them to reach that potential. You want to help them to negotiate those very difficult years, especially between, say, 15 and 25. And they'll make their mistakes, but live uh, good lives and get married, have children, become a part of the church, maybe even serve and work in the church. Living University contributes a great deal and will contribute much more, I trust, in the future to training the future leaders in the God's kingdom because, as Mr. Herbert Armstrong said, without real college training, he never could have a really educated ministry. And, of course, Ambassador College was not just for training ministers. It was a liberal arts educational system so that individuals could learn the true values of life and apply them in life, and yet in an educated way, the true values of education. What is true education? What is true success? And how do you apply the liberal arts in every facet of life? And we've talked about these things for years, but you know, it wasn't until Dr. Germano walked through our front door about three or four years ago, and Dr. Germano brought the expertise to be able to set up a college or a university. Well, one day I got a phone call, and it was Dr. Douglas Winnell, and he said, I'm driving by on the freeway, uh, Haywood Community College, which reminded me a lot of the college at Big Sandy because of the terrain that it has on the mountains. Uh, he said, uh, can I stop by? I mean, it's just a mile, I think, from the freeway. So I said, well, sure, come on over. And for some reason, I, I thought, you know, I need to show him how distance education works because an ambassador, we really didn't do this other than with a, a, a VHS videotapes. Ambassador College brought students to the college and we are actually bringing the university to uh, our students all around the world. We've had over 100 students a semester that are involved and they can take classes in their living room, uh, take their classes over coffee and breakfast in the morning, uh, we're trying to bring information to our people. As long as you have internet access, 
you can be a living university student. No longer do you need to leave your job and leave your home and leave your family for a year or two or three or uproot your family and bring them in from Malaysia or South Africa or Kenya or Central America, but you can actually sit at home in your, in your own home and you can take these courses. You can grow on the ground. It allows students from all over the world not restricted by geographical location to be able to benefit from the experience of years of teaching of Dr. Meredith, of uh, Dr. Winnell, Dr. Germano, myself and others who've had that experience. Living University is such a blessing because I never had the opportunity to attend or to even visit an Ambassador College campus. And now we have professors in Living University that were part of Ambassador College back in the heyday. And we get to sit at their feet and to learn. It's a tremendous opportunity and one that should not be uh, passed over or taken lightly. It's helped me to become a better uh, teacher for my children because going through the scriptures on a daily basis in a real in-depth way where you're, you're studying something really in-depth like in Living University uh, it forces you to memorize things so that you can find them so that you don't just tell people your opinion about the scriptures but that you can demonstrate it from the scriptures. Living University's motto is recapture true values just like Ambassador College was and in our own way we're trying to recapture that same spirit. We're still small but as I experienced and most of you know Ambassador started with four students and then next year seven students and then the third year when I came twelve students. Ambassador College started from ground zero. We're not starting from ground zero. We haven't. We have longtime Ambassador College faculty members as our faculty members. We've got an administrator, a president, who has been there and he's done that. And so in many ways, when Living University started, we hit the ground running. Taking some courses with Living University will help young people establish a firm foundation because we study a number of these things. Is the Bible the, the Word of God? Is it inspired? Uh, <clears throat> what are the doctrines of the Bible? Can you trust the Bible? You know, did Jesus Christ really live? So there are a number of benefits of uh, taking classes, taking courses in leadership, taking courses in principles of Christian living. They're going to be able to apply these things immediately in their lives and then within their families and then hopefully help others within the church. I decided to coach my daughter's softball team using just the principles we were learning in Christian leadership, knowing nothing about girls softball. And using those principles, we actually went on to win a championship and uh, it was a very exciting thing. Uh, but then in life teachings and ministry and, and in the epistles of Paul, the knowledge, the background knowledge of the history, the culture, uh, just opens your understanding of the scriptures, things that you've read a million times that you miss, that you don't see. It just broadens your understanding so much. Uh, and you look at the scriptures really in a, a little different way. What Living University is able to do in the lives of these individuals is increase their capacity to serve. They have more confidence. They have a deeper understanding. They have answers to the questions that um, they may not have had before or would have had to work extremely hard to find. And it's, it's giving them greater depth. To use the biblical analogy, their talents are increasing and they're able to use them now. That's really exciting. Individuals who would want to be an ambassador college, if there was one, who never had the opportunity, who now can be part of this.
I think the future of Living University depends on whatever doors God wants to open. Right now, we're serving our, our local congregations and the people in the church. We are developing some programs that are not directly linked with Living University right now, but hopefully down the road will be. Uh, Mr. Bruce Tyler has a Bible Institute in Australia, and we have students that are taking classes with Living University online that can go to Australia and spend a semester. We've also talked about developing similar programs in Canada and possibly the UK, maybe even South Africa. Uh, but we want to give our students opportunities to continue to study with Living University, but in other settings. So these things are going to be exciting. If we open our Living University classes to our mailing list, people taking Tomorrow's World magazine, we're looking at an exponential growth of Living University. Right now we have 100 students or so each semester. We could be looking at several thousand students per semester. Right now we don't have the infrastructure to handle that. But I think as people learn what we're teaching and realize what this missing dimension is all about, uh, I think it's going to be very exciting to see where God may take Living University. And the things that you have heard from me among many witnesses, commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. The church has established, of course, several programs for developing leadership. One was the Living Leadership Course, which ministers gave to their local congregations over a period of a couple years. Uh, some may still be involved in that program. But uh, it really has been effective in helping brethren to communicate with one another, to encourage one another, and understand the biblical principles of leadership. Other programs include, of course, the Spokesman Club, in which men have the opportunity to develop their communication skills, their service skills, their leadership skills. Probably more than any other tool that we've had, the Spokesman Club produces really good fruit. The men get to know one another, uh, they, they learn how to speak, they learn how to express themselves, and iron sharpens iron. They are able to bounce things off of one another. They hear how other people respond to questions. And so the Spokesman Club, I think, is one of the most powerful tools that we have for training leaders. We've also developed the Advanced Leadership Training Program, which is part of the Pastoral Manual. The Pastoral Manual consists of 14 lessons that uh, talk about various ways of becoming a more effective pastor. Then the Advanced Leadership Training Program is designed for the area pastor to go over uh, each of these lessons with deacons and elders and other leaders in the congregation so that they become familiar with the principles of leadership that make leaders effective. Well, the Advanced Leadership Program is not simply a class you take if you want to be a minister. Let me get that out right away. Uh, it's not like, you know, someone th I would like to be an apostle. And if I can just take this Advanced Leadership course, that I can, can be that. Uh, what it is, at least from my perspective, is that we want a usually a small group of people, and we'll do a new one uh, every every other time as far as every other year. Uh, but these are individuals who may be pillars in the church, that they will never be ordained, but they are strong influences in the church of God. Others, we, we see that, well, in the future, they really have the potential of being a deacon or an elder or perhaps a pastor. One of my first assignments as a full-time employee of the church was to essentially read everything that the church had in print every one of the booklets to read and study, go through the Bible study course, 
in detail. So you can read something and you'll come away with a certain level of knowledge. But when you read something, knowing that somebody's going to ask you a question about it or has asked you a question about it, it implants it into your brain a lot more solidly than just reading it over. So the study time is more fruitful in that it produces the, the growth in, in knowledge um, by God's grace. For an individual to aspire to be a minister is not a bad thing. Uh, you know, there's, there's two different, say, paths that people can take. One is they see the, the minister speaking in front of the audience, and they see supposedly all this glory, uh, which really is, is not there. Uh, I'll just say that. Because uh, our whole purpose is to serve. And uh, the ministry is not maybe as, as uh, glorious as it appears, you know, with the uh, speaking opportunities and, and uh, you know, the suits and the ties and, and uh, you drive a decent car to be able to serve the brethren. Uh, we're not up there to, uh, to uh, exalt ourselves. Uh, for those who think the ministry, uh, the ministry in those terms, that they, they can't wait to be a minister so they can teach their own ideas and so on, uh, they're just not going to, to make it. But for an individual who has the right... Uh, the right purpose. They, they see the office of a minister. They have this desire that maybe someday I would like to be able to help brethren, maybe to help teach, uh, to help them obtain the kingdom or attain the kingdom of God, uh, if God wills. Uh, so the first thing I, I would say is just be humble and leave it in God's hands. As far as the actual opportunity, leave that in God's hands. A minister should always be training someone to take his place. I learned that early on when I was in the business world that whatever you're doing, if you have a position of authority, as soon as you were put in that position of authority, you began training someone to take your place. And in the church of God, we must train younger men to come into the ministry and other areas of leadership because the youth, the younger people are the future of the church. The ministry is not a, a job or a career. It is a calling. And during that time period, we want to understand and really believe and let them understand that God is truly calling them to this opportunity. And it's not simply memorizing our literature or memorizing biblical scriptures, but do they really understand it? Uh, do they understand not just the letter of the law, but how it is applied in the spirit of the law, in a balanced, uh, godly manner? Do they truly love the brethren? Do they understand and respect government and how to work within that government? So there's a lot of aspects uh, that we want them to, to truly understand before we're given, uh, they're given responsibility work with other brethren. And one of the criteria is uh, we ask ourselves, uh, if, if that individual was my daughter's pastor or my son's pastor, uh, would I be happy with that? Would, would I be uh, again really good with it as far as thinking they're in good hands, they're going to be cared for spiritually? And if I can honestly answer, yes, I would love to have my own children uh, be under their care, uh, then I know we're on the right track. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. It's always encouraging whenever you uh, anoint someone, you know, we ask that God would intervene and bless them and heal them according to his will. And in some cases, uh, people get better slowly. In some cases, people get better, you know, very dramatically. 
And those are always exciting to see. So I believe in miracles. I believe in anointing. Personally, I've had miracles. All I could say that as God's people, we have to do what God says for God to fulfill his promises. God's hand was there during the earthquake to protect his people. According to the government, more than 300,000 people lost their lives during the earthquake. Not a single person in God's church had a little scratch. Uh, we were called in because this individual was dying. And the nurses had called the family and said that this, this woman was going to die. And I remember one of the family members explained to us, talking to the nurse, they said, well, is there any hope for her? And she said, no, the enzymes that build up upon death have already started, and they gave her just a few hours to live. And I remember going in to anoint her, and there were tubes. She'd been in a horrific accident. There were tubes coming out of her every place. There were nurses coming in. There were buzzers going off. And one of the other ministers also came in either before or afterward and anointed her. But that night, uh, around 3 in the morning, she made a total turnaround, and she was healed. A young child rolled down the stairs, hit her head against a brick uh, fireplace right in the temple, and it just swelled immediately, right on the temple. I anointed that child, and as soon as I finished, said, Amen, and looked, I could see that goose egg go right back and disappear. I don't remember specifically what the the one problem was. I think it had to do perhaps with an injury. But I anointed her for the the injury if that happened to be what it was. But what really sticks in my mind, the lady was a diabetic. And I asked God to provide healing not only for what the immediate problem appeared to be, but for any other sickness or illness that was a hindrance to the lady. About a week later, the daughter came to me and said, you know what, mom not only got well, I think it was like the day after that, that the healing process for the, for the injury, whatever, it went extremely well. I said, you know what, mom is no longer a diabetic. One, uh, one true story about God's mercy. This lady was on the brink of death waiting for a liver transplant. She looked like she had probably hours to live when I anointed her. This is Medellin, Colombia. And, uh, and the brethren all fasted for her. They prayed and they, I know their prayers came to the presence of God. And this happened during the days of unleavened bread. And that woman, and, and they asked, she reminded me that, we're, are we praying so that the liver, someone, a donor comes up? And said, no, we're praying that God heals your liver, the one who he put there in your body. And, and she was healed. There was a time uh, that an individual was uh, HIV positive and had diabetes as well, and had some complications. And a fellow minister and I anointed the individual, and all of a sudden those problems were gone. So there was just absolutely no doubt uh, in my mind that God did the healing. 
a man with uh, a lovely family, I think about uh, four children, uh, on a small farmlet in western New South Wales, um, had uh, contracted a, a, um, an injury through a bite from an animal which had turned septic and um, he actually he was um, really on his deathbed. They, they could do nothing to, um, to save him and he was in the hospice and his mother, I had conducted her funeral not so um, uh, long before this occasion. And uh, I anointed him and uh, the family were destroyed, of course, because if anything happened to him, the farmlet, and they'd have nothing. So I, I anointed him and prayed and I know I, I walked out of that uh, hospice and I just cried out to God, please heal this man. And um, two days later, he was back on the farm working. We pray that God would give us more healings like that and I think that we will see them. It's very inspiring when we see God intervene. And we know it's Him. It's not us. It's Him and His, his faithfulness and His mercy. I absolutely believe that there are going to be far more spectacular healings. And, of course, we do believe there's a time when there's going to be a place of protection uh, for many of God's people. And uh, let's face it, there are individuals who could not physically go to a place of protection without being healed because they are dependent on certain medications or they have certain physical afflictions, they cannot travel, can't get out of their home, but they're faithful brethren, uh, you know, waiting for God's miracles. And if they're still alive and functioning at that time, uh, God's not going to leave them behind. Uh, he's going to provide a way and he's going to have to do some healing. So I absolutely do believe uh, that there'll be more. We also have, have cases of of demon-possessed people that have been freed. And uh, I don't want to go into many details, but I, we have several cases of those where we see God's hand doing it. We are not the ones. He is the one who does the healings. He is the one who casts out demons. We just ask in His name and He does it. It's something that uh, we haven't as a church dealt with for a number of years too often. We used to back in the 60s and, and when, you, when you read about uh, uh, Christ's ministry, he dealt with demons all the time. And that was a major part of his ministry. I was challenged. The person's voice changed. I mean, he actually attacked me like an animal. And I just rebuked the demon in, in the name of Jesus Christ. The person stopped, wanted to argue. And I, I just said, you have no business. And the, by the authority of Jesus Christ, I command you to leave, to get out of the state and to leave this person. And the person didn't want to, I mean, and there was a struggle, and finally it left. The person was just totally exhausted and was back to her normal self. As time goes on, where Satan begins to attack, we begin to see this angry spirit in people who are attacking God's church under individuals who need the service of God's help to get rid of a demon and in many of those cases uh, the ministry comes and tells the individual look uh, we will help you you have your part to do because it tells us in James resist the devil and he will flee from you but in many cases where there is a an actual demon uh, God's ministers are called upon to cast out that demon in the name of Jesus Christ in that powerful name and that's still going on and God still honors the authority of the ministry 
who are true ministers of Jesus Christ. And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. Government is terribly important to God's plan and God's truth because, frankly, we are to preach that are commanded by Christ to preach the gospel of the kingdom of God. That's the whole basis of tomorrow's world, a coming world government to take over this world. So if we don't teach government and we don't understand or teach or practice right government even in the church in preparation for being kings and priests under Christ, then we're missing the whole point. If we just get sentimental about Christ, or even if we practice the truths, such as the Sabbath, the Holy Days, but we leave out government, then we're not learning the lessons that Christ wants us as a church to learn to prepare to be those kings and priests in preparation for God's kingdom. You have to have governments to be able to rule. God is the one who governs with Christ. His church should be under God's rulership. If we are not faithful, if we are little, how will we be faithful for eternity? And that's a mathematical formula that God uses. And if we are given the blessing of being under church government, directed by the Spirit of God the Father and Jesus Christ, is a wonderful blessing of preparation to be loyal for eternity. It provides security to those who understand and who are submissive to that government. Security for the members as in a family that's well directed and led by parents provides security for the children. Uh, because without that form of government that we're learning within God's church, uh, really our families won't succeed and uh, ultimately communities won't succeed, nations won't succeed, and, and certainly this world is experiencing uh, uh, utter failure because of breaking God's laws of government in so many ways. And government is another way of showing how God loves us and how we are to love Him. We have commandments, we have instructions to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's a way of love, it's a way of relating to one another. Or to teach them the Ten Commandments as the way of life, and that has to do with their personal spiritual life. But God says over and over, even in the prophecies talking about tomorrow's world, that at that time the human beings, Israel, a type of all the nations, will again be taught and practice the statutes. And the statutes have to do with tithing and the holy days and a number of things like that, clean and unclean meats. They're all mentioned as part of the statutes of God, a whole way of life. So they have to be taught those things to understand the detailed aspects of the government of God. And of course, the kingdom of God is the government of God. It's Christ coming back as King of kings and Lord of lords. And we're trained to be kings and priests and judges in the coming kingdom of God. So government is so important within the church for the benefit of the brethren, to help them to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ and in the basic fundamental doctrines and teachings of the church to be established in the truth. With God's truth plus God's government and authority, I think uh, we are, God is pleased with us and in doing that and in doing His work. Or ultimately, it is God's will, God's work, and that's our daily prayer, that God's will be done. One way or the other, the wife will be ready. And the wife is one body. 
And in one body, every organ works with the others in harmony, under one head, with the same system, not separated here and there. We read in 1 Corinthians 14.33 that God is not the author of confusion. And when you don't have some sort of structure, you don't have some sort of government, then chaos results. Uh, you know, God established through Moses, actually the advice that his father-in-law gave him. He said, Moses, you're wearing yourself out trying to do everything yourself. You've got to delegate. You've got to delegate to individuals who have strong character that cannot be corrupted, that are able to lead, that have wise, they're able to make wise judgments. So we find that in Exodus 18. And then we find that same principle used throughout the Bible. You know, the Apostle Paul appointed elders. He didn't vote people in and people didn't run for office. They were appointed. And they were appointed on the basis of their character, on the basis of their ability. So God has provided examples of government. And we're trying to follow that in the church today. With that government, I think the people see that everyone wants to start taking charge and no uh, decisions can't be made. So I think we've proved over the years how cohesive um, the congregations are because of church government. Of course, the whole purpose is to help God's people, to help us to go to the maturity of Jesus Christ. And it is government from what we call the top down. But the top is God, God the Father, Jesus Christ, uh, who is the head of the church. And of course, he uses human instruments. If we can learn to emulate those that God has chosen to lead us, that is vital. The Apostle Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. Mr. Meredith says that, and that is, is so critical. And this is why the living church of God is so different among the other churches, uh, because we know we have to work from top to bottom. I'm a firm believer that you can't govern effectively, ultimately, by committee. You can have committees to advise, but one man has to be in charge. And then you learn, and, and you know, I'm a bit older than I used to be, and I've come through many, many experiences and actually many different organizations. Uh, you have to have the right man in the right position, um, who is able to lead, who has a, the right attitudes and the, the right equipment, you might say. And when all that's in place, the government from the top down is the one that's right and it works. Uh, Dr. Meredith is one of the great church leaders of history. From the time of Adam till now, he fits the bill as one of the great leaders in God's church under Christ. We know that Christ is the head of this church, but he uses individuals like Herbert W. Armstrong and uh, Dr. Meredith and others to fill critical roles at critical times. He's had a fire in his belly for as long as I've known him. He's been excited about and has a sense of vision for the coming kingdom of God. I really appreciate his friendship, his, uh, his guidance, and, uh, and of course, as we look a, a, a around all of the church areas, there is a, a unity there. And when Dr. Meredith um, came out to Australia uh, not so long ago now to keep the, uh, the Passover season, the, the, the brethren were so uh, enamored and excited at that visit that still today, years later, they still remember at the night to be much observed, Mr. and Mrs. Meredith being there. We're deeply grateful for Mr. Meredith, from his association over some 60 years now, working with Mr. Armstrong, under Mr. Armstrong, and his approach 
And here's strength of commitment, an example that is set. The tremendous discernment that he has and the care that he has and the wisdom that he uses in his ability to lead and direct God's church in all of these different factors. When I was looking for a place to go when the church went into a certain apostasy, uh, he was different. He had left that organization, but he was always different in my mind, he and Carl McNair as well. I always saw them as, as being uh, rock solid when it came to the truth. And it isn't just what he has preached, but it has been his example that has been important to me. And when I see Mr. Meredith, the way he's preaching today, after his attack, it's amazing. I told him, I said, look, uh, you're speaking much more powerful than level, in the past. Great power. You know what he told me? Well, Dimari said, I tell myself this could be my last sermon. Therefore, see, everything he has, he puts in. And I try to imitate. Every time I speak, I say this could be my last sermon too. Dr. Meredith, whom I have the honor of being a personal friend of his, he says so and I, I say it so, has been a tremendous example for me of humility and of surrender to God. He has always inspired me, even when I first came to the church in the 70s, his oracles. And uh, we used to say in Ambassador College, the time will come for God is going to use this man. We all, many of us who were his students, we felt inside that he would be the man God used in the very end time. And it came to be true. And that's where we're living now. But his example of leadership, of humility, contrary to the concept of many, which is very sad, but God is using those things to test our discernment. But he has practiced humility. He's have had a lot of mercy with me. I can say that. He never takes a a decision in an unilateral way. He always uses multitude of counsel. So the government is, is such a blessing when it is exercised that way. When you feel it comes from a converted heart that is God working through this instrument. It's just a wonderful thing. Christ has always worked through leaders. And here we have a leader who has now been an ordained evangelist for 57 and a half years or so. And he has the experience, the fruits of God's Spirit and the leadership and how Christ is working through him and fulfilling the Great Commission. And how important is the Great Commission at this time in all of man's history? We are at the very end time. And uh, Christ has called us to fulfill that mission of preaching the gospel as a witness to all nations. Christ will open the doors. But uh, Dr. Meredith has shown the fruits over the years. He has that tenacity. He has that intensity, uh, that bulldog determination to fulfill the mission that Christ has given us. And now we in the Living Church of God have been going for about 17 and one-half years and we've had one leader. I've been able to remain alive and still vigorous in spite of my stroke. 
leading, and these men are zealous, and if I die, they will carry on preaching the truth. That's the key thing. We've got to preach the truth and do the work based on not our imagination, but the truth. And you know, that's one thing I would like to comment on as we finish here, and that is near the end of John's life. He was the faithful apostle, as you know, Jesus' special friend among the apostles, and he talks a lot about the law all the way through, even at the very end. After Paul was supposed to do away with it, John talks about it over and over. And he says back here in 1 John 2, 4, He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You've got to keep the commandments. That's the whole thing, to live to the truth. He said over in 1 John 3 and verse 22, Whatever we ask, if we pray to God, we receive from Him. Why? Because we keep His commandments, plural, all ten of them, and do those things that are pleasing in His sight. And He said again at the very end of His first letter, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3, For this is the love of God. What is God's love? That we keep His commandments, plural, and His commandments are not burdensome. But even more, as John wrote the very last books of his life, he talks about the truth, the truth, the truth. That's the key thing as he began to realize it's not just the church. The church may be persecuted. The church may be scattered. You may not have a lot of people around you, but you better always remember who is preaching the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth. In the third epistle of John, He says, to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. He says in verse 3, I rejoice greatly when brethren came and testified of the truth that is in you, just as you walk in the truth. Verse 4, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children walk in truth. We therefore ought to receive such that we may become fellow workers for the truth. Hang on to the truth. That's what we want to teach. That's what we want to live by. That's what we must live by, the truth, and have Christ living his life in us so we can follow the truth and live the truth.
This has been a production of The Living Church of God.